Welcome back to NBS Cast. I'm one of your hosts, Rachel Edwards, and I'm doing the intro for this episode solo today because we have a special guest on the podcast. Dwayne Bonifer, Executive Director of Communications and Marketing from my alma mater, Mammoth College. Mammoth has a special place in our company's history because one of our original founders, David Burns, also graduated from Mammoth College in 1972. Dwayne had some really great things to say about the college's experience during a pandemic, including how they transitioned to online learning, hosting virtual graduation ceremonies, and even thinking about the future of higher education. It's an interesting conversation, so let's get into it. All right, Raquel. Well, here we are with Dwayne Bonifer from Monmouth College. Yes. Thanks, Dwayne, for joining us today. Great to be here with you all. To start out, if we could just have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Monmouth College and what you do there so we can get to know you, that would be great. Sure. I'm the Associate Vice President of Communications and Marketing. Another way of saying it's Chief Communications Officer, the or I like to say the, the head PR person. I've been in higher ed for more than a quarter of a century and have the lack of hair and gray hairs to show that. Monmouth College is a residential liberal arts college located in west central Illinois on the Illinois Prairie, about 45 minutes east of the Mississippi River, about an hour west of Peoria. It was founded in 1853 by Presbyterian pioneers, and it has persisted today to a college of about a thousand students with a very strong liberal arts curriculum. It's known for business and economics programs. Its programs in the classics is quite strong. Pretty much if you have a Latin teacher in the Midwest, there's a good chance they were either taught by a Monmouth alumnus or alumna, or they are a graduate of Monmouth College. has a very strong pre-professional program, especially in the sciences, because the college built about five years ago a 40 million plus center for business and science that does a really nice job preparing students for pre-med medicine, pre-dental, research, and the sciences as well. Wow. Yes. And I actually went to Monmouth College. I graduated in 2007. Well, and you know all about the Turkey Bowl, which occasionally will do <laughs> a trivia question, some sports games. It's the sixth oldest continuous college football rivalry in the country between Monmouth College and Knox College, dating back to the 1880s. And they play every year for the Turkey Bowl, which Monmouth has won 20 years in a row. I guess it's still a rivalry if you win 20 times in a row. <laughs> That's right. So can you tell us a little bit about the liberal arts style of education? Because it's a little different. We work with a lot of state schools and a lot of universities around the country, but we do also work with uh, smaller campuses and liberal arts universities as well. So you can, can you tell us a little about what a liberal arts education looks like? Well, the way I've always liked to describe a liberal arts education is in the opening pages of John Henry Newman's idea of the university. He talks about preparing students with a philosophical habit of mind. And I think at its heart, that's what the liberal arts are all about. It's preparing students to see and react and interact and lead in the world with the breadth and depth of an education that pulls lots of different subjects and ideas together. You might be thinking about, for example, uh, how anthropology and accounting intersect with one another, or how political science in, in English. That's what a liberal arts education does a very good job of doing is preparing students to be folks who can assimilate information, make connections, and quite frankly, become very good leaders because of the breadth and depth of their education. 
Thank you for explaining that. I can tell you from experience that translates to writing a lot of reflection papers in class. <laughs> yes, yes. Not a lot of bubbles test. Uh, in the old days, you would have had a lot of blue book tests. Now, of course, electronic documents as opposed to blue books for finals. There's a lot of writing, a lot of explaining. And so it's, it's seen the world from several perspectives and several points of view. I always like to say a good liberal arts education, like the one that Monmouth provides students, doesn't just prepare them for their first job out of college. It prepares them for their last job that they'll have. It's sort of a logarithmic acceleration throughout their career in terms of being able to accumulate the knowledge and then connect the dots and put the pieces together in an appropriate way. Because, I mean, I always say now, you can look up just about anything that you want. You can learn the history and the facts of, of something very easily. What's at the crux of the liberal arts experience is the interaction with the professor. You know, James Garfield once famously said about Williams College that the ideal college classroom setting is, is Mark Hopkins on one end of a log and a student on the other. And that's really what happens as well at the residential liberal arts college the interaction between the faculty and the students. There's more than just teaching. There's mentoring. There's coaching. I think of this alum we have. We were interviewing him once about his experience, and this guy has his MBA, and he said to this day, he still calls his professors at Monmouth and says, let me tell you about something I'm thinking about. Yeah, I want to run this past you. Or he says in his mind, he's thinking, what would professor so-and-so say? That's really what I, I think the benefit of a good residential liberal arts experience experience is, is that professor becomes more than someone who just provides information to you. They're a lifelong mentor. Yes, absolutely right. I am actually still friends with a former religious studies professor who taught there at Monmouth. We still talk via Facebook. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, we have alumni when they come to town, they don't stay at hotels, they stay with their former professors. To me, there's no greater credit to the impact that professors have on a student's life in terms of having those ongoing relationships. Wow, I really love that. So let's kind of talk about what is it like on campus right now? In one word, eerie. The best place in the world to be, except perhaps a baseball game on opening day, <sighs> uh, is a college campus in the spring. And to walk across a campus with the flowers in bloom and uh, leaves appearing on the trees, not seeing any students is just an eerie sort of feeling. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, you sort of feel like you're in an empty set of a movie or something, especially a campus like Monmouth, which, as you know, is very picturesque and has a lot of red brick buildings and it's a lovely place to walk. It feels more than just a tad askew. It feels like you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. With your description about how everyone's so connected, you need the people for that, and you walk on an almost empty campus. Yeah, I can totally get that feeling. A residential liberal arts college is a living, learning classroom. The entire campus is. And the magic that takes place, sure, it happens in the laboratories and it happens in the classrooms, but it's those interactions people have while passing one another, or the conversations they have when they see one another in the coffee shop, in the library, or in the dining center or at the athletic center. And it's those interactions that not just faculty and students have, but students have with each other and students and, and staff and staff and faculty. And that's where so much of the energy and the ideas and the creativity come from is sort of outside the traditional classroom setting. Even though the work is continuing to get done and students are continuing to meet and they're interacting with professors, it's not quite the same because having those conversations on the steps of Wallace Hall, that's where the new ideas are often hatched and connections are made. That's what's not happening right now. 
speaking of that experience, what steps did Monmouth have to take in order to transition to online learning? And how are the professors and students coping with that? Well, let me start off by saying that professors have just done an absolutely amazing job. You don't come to a residential liberal arts college to teach online. I think most professors would say that. They certainly use elements in their classes, whether it's clips from a speech or movie or some interactive program that they've developed, but they came there to do face-to-face interaction and teaching. So the fact that within a couple weeks they shifted to online is a testament. They've done incredibly well. They haven't used one platform. You know, some schools went to one platform and said, this is how we're going to deliver online because Monmouth has not been a place that's been part of the online learning community. It gave faculty and students the option to decide how they would best do that. Zoom has obviously been very popular, but so have Teams on, on Microsoft. Some folks are, are just using Google Hangouts. Some are doing interactions with email, with conference calls, just whatever works best for them. And then, of course, they have their academic software as well. They've done, I think, an amazing job. I don't think any of them have enjoyed it as we've talked to students, as we've talked to faculty. They say they're doing it because they have to, and it, it's a necessity, but they're literally counting down the days when they can return to campus and be back to a a quote-unquote normal environment. And it's been the students, too, have done amazingly well. Faculty have been working with each other. The support teams on the staff side have been great. Several individuals who've been working with faculty to make sure that they're able to deliver the content the way they want. But what's really come out of this in higher education is that online education, at least for the 18 to 24-year-old student, doesn't have the potential that some people thought it would maybe 10 years ago. That's an interesting thought because liberal arts, it's based on that heavy discussion in class. And it's hard to facilitate that over WebEx or Teams or conference call. You ask a question and then people just kind of sit there waiting for other people to answer. Whereas if you're in person, you can feed off the body language, you can feed off the other social cues that you sort of miss in that kind of environment. One of the biggest complaints I've heard from professors is they said it's hard for them to read the students when they're having their class discussions. And that's that's a big part of, it, of the classroom experience at Mama. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that, too, because we just interviewed one of our interns who is a current college student in uh, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and she said it's easier to disengage when you are in a class online because you could have your phone in front of you and you could be online shopping during that time. It's just so much easier <laughs> to be distracted by the other calls of the Internet. So you don't really have that option when you're in that classroom. You're going to have to fully engage with what's going on in that room at that time. Yeah. Even if you think about what a phone call is like, a lot of conversations you have over the telephone are guided by usually one thing, right? You're trying to exchange one bit of information with each other, even if it's not something about, well, what time are you going to be there? What are you going to bring? You know, say you're consoling a friend over the phone. It's just different when you then open that up to a group of of people. That's nearly impossible to have any any kind of meaningful interaction. I don't know how you would have a class of 200 online. That'd be really interesting to see. It sounds to me like the real element that's making it more difficult for liberal arts college to transition is that person-to-person interaction. Would that be correct? Yeah. I mean, I think exactly what Aristotle said, right? We're social creatures. I think the loss of community is felt not just on the academic side or in the the classes, but it's felt throughout the operations of the college. 
Yeah, it kind of sounds like the old adage, it takes a village. Whether you're teaching advanced physics or making omelets for students, you're both doing the same thing. You're trying to mentor and advise them and help them graduate. And it, it's like the old line from NASA in the 1960s when a janitor was asked, what is your responsibility here? And the janitor replied to help put a man on the moon. At a place like Monmouth, everyone is focused on the same thing. You don't have that as much when you're online. So you mentioned graduation in your last response. I would love to hear how you're handling those graduating seniors this year and what resources you've made available to both your students and your faculty during this time. Well, we're planning to have two graduations this year. The first will be on schedule, May 16th and 17th. We're going to have a virtual graduation weekend. It's going to be a little bit different because the way Mammoth does commencement is on Saturday. It always has a baccalaureate service in the afternoon, and that's followed by something called the Senior Honor Walk, where every senior who's made a gift to the senior gift is given a coin. They're allowed to present to an individual who had the biggest impact on them during their time at Mammoth. It typically goes to a family member or to a member of the faculty or staff. Then after that, there's a senior banquet where the seniors and their family members gather in the athletic center. Then on Sunday at high noon, commencement is held and begins with the caroling of the bells and then playing of the bagpipes who lead the graduates and the faculty onto the lawn in front of Hollis Hall. What we've decided to do is to create a two-part virtual commencement weekend. On Saturday, we'll have an abbreviated senior banquet, so to speak, where uh, seniors and those who are scheduled to speak will record their message and that'll be posted at five o'clock in the evening. And then at 6.10 in the evening, Facebook Live, we're still going to have the senior toast for the president and first lady, raise a glass of champagne and give a toast to the graduating class. So that'll still take place live on Facebook. Then on Sunday at noon, we'll post sort of a modified commencement ceremony that's going to incorporate some of baccalaureate into it. There'll be the reading of all the graduates' names. The commencement speaker, he's going to send us a, a video that the student who speaks at commencement is the link laureate of the class. She's already submitted her speech. And then uh, when students are graduated from Monmouth, they're actually graduated in Latin. And so that, that will still happen online. And then again, the dean and the president will take turns reading everyone's names, which is a little bit different because usually the dean is only the person who reads names. And that will be about 30, 40 minute ceremony. Then on September 19th, we'll have another commencement ceremony on campus for the graduates. I'm not exactly sure what the technical phrase is, if you call it commencement times two or a repeat or, or what, it'll be the, the ceremony once again. So we thought it was important to certainly celebrate on May 17th because that's the day that students have circled for a long time. And then we'll encourage them to have have celebrations at home. We're sending them what we call a commencement care package that'll have several items in it for them to celebrate the weekend with. And then we'll have a celebration with them on social media. They'll submit photos and videos that we'll also post. But the commencement speaker is going to come back to campus on September 19th, and he's going to give his full commencement address as well. So it'll be interesting to see what it's like to have two commencement ceremonies. What's the old song, love is better the second time around? Well, we'll find out if commencement's better the the second time around. (laughs) I love that you're offering that option for those students to not only have the online experience at the normal time that they would have been graduating, but to have the second experience where they get to be there in person together to celebrate the fact that they made it through their four years. I think that's great. 
And so one of the things we have at commencement is we have an academic gauntlet at the end. The faculty exit first, and they sort of form a gauntlet on the plaza that the students pass through, where every graduate hugs every faculty member. So, I mean, things like that are, are probably going to have to be adjusted even in September. But, sure. you know, it's a neat moment to where the faculty acknowledge and celebrate the graduates for their accomplishments. And those moments are important. Typically, the Friday or the Saturday before commencement as well, the soon-to-be graduates all get together and visit one final time as a group their uh, favorite establishments in downtown Monmouth. So they finish discussing the finer points of certain arguments they've been having about life. The students want to be able to come back and have those moments. It won't be the same. But it's funny, you know, as you talk to the seniors, they all say the same thing. We'll certainly have something to talk about at our 20 or 25, 50-year reunions. It sounds like you are just making every effort to make sure this graduation is going to be as grand as it would have been in person. Going along those lines, how do you think the world of higher education is going to change as a result of COVID-19? Well, that's a great question. If I had the answers to that, I would be selling them on Amazon right now. <laughs> I'd be a number one bestseller. I really do. <laughs> you can call it what you want. You can call it a black swan moment. You can call it a transformational moment. I'm sure somebody somewhere will come up with a phrase to describe this period we're, we're passing through. It's unlike anything higher education has been through, that's for sure. And that includes the Civil War, World War I, the, the Spanish flu in World War II, certainly Vietnam. The higher education historian John Thielen recently talked about this in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and he said one of the things to remember about American higher education is that American higher education has been incredibly resilient, adaptive, and creative. So it's withstood a lot of challenges over time. And it's been creative in terms of how it's responded to the challenges and new demands. This, though, may be the moment that I think puts all three of those characteristics to test at once. I don't know where it's going to head. Will students and, and families want a bachelor's degree to be offered or be at least attainable in three years instead of four? And what are the implications there? Will students and families want to create their own sort of hybrid model where they can take some online classes and maybe take a few classes at a community college and then try transfer after a year into a college like Monmouth or Illinois State or wherever and only have two or two and a half more years of education. I mean, there's just a lot of things, I think, that are going to be up in the air. I think we have some ideas because there have been a lot of companies that have been doing a lot of excellent market research in terms of how students feel right now about the changes. But the problem is, is that right now, a long-range plan in higher education is about a six-hour plan. And so things are changing so much that even schools that have put out their definite plans for reopening in the fall have given four, five, six different scenarios because no one knows what that's going to look like, much less the new landscape is going to look like. So we don't know what's going to be important to students and, and families. My sense is that what they'll want is to be enrolled at colleges and universities and academic programs that they feel like prepares them for the job market right now. And that's always sort of been, I think, a pressure on higher ed. So I think the challenge on colleges and universities will be we have to demonstrate, not just tell, but show how we do a good job preparing students for, for, for the job market and do it at an economical price. Because I, I think families will seek value in the education. I don't necessarily think that means they'll seek the lowest price, but I think they'll seek value in terms of where they feel like they're getting the, the best return of their investment, not just of their dollar, but of their time as well. 
I don't think anyone knows. That was very thought-provoking. From what you said, it's besides the education that somebody wants to get, besides the preparedness for the job market that someone wants to get, it's about the experience they want too. That is something all colleges are going to have to think about. What is that experience going to be like? Even if it does have to be all online or a hybrid, that experience factor weighs a lot when kids are deciding where to go. I said when this happened, when this started, that I think it will be the fall of 2023 before we have any idea of what the new higher education landscape looks like, which means we're going to have to go through three school years of a great deal of uncertainty and evaluation. So we have one final question that we would like to ask. We ask this to everyone that comes on our podcast. What is your silver lining from this situation? Colleges and universities are where some of the smartest and most creative, innovative individuals work. I don't think we have the market cornered on that. There are lots of industries that have very interesting, creative, and innovative people. But there are a lot of very smart people who work in higher ed who can see things from lots of different perspectives, ask lots of good questions, and come up with solutions that weren't even imagined at one time. And higher education has always done that. I have no doubt that we'll come up with something very interesting. I keep telling a lot of my younger colleagues in higher education to savor, enjoy this moment as nerve-wracking and as upsetting as it is at times, because you are going through an unprecedented transformation. You'll be able to look back on 40, 50 years from now and say that you were not only there, but here's how you responded to it. But I think we'll we'll emerge very well. And I, I know Monmouth will emerge as a stronger institution. I think other places will as well. And this is you know an opportunity to be inventive and creative. I don't think we throw out what we've done in the past. I don't think we discard our plans. I don't think we ignore any of that. But I I think we'll take the best of that and the spirit of that and move forward to an exciting future. At the end of the day, our purpose is to transform lives. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why we exist, to change students' lives, help them discover potential that they didn't even realize they had. We'll find new and better and more interesting ways to to do that in the future. That's a side of me that actually is kind of enjoying what's going on right now. Well, Dwayne, we just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us about not only how things are going on the Monmouth campus specifically, but just your perspective on higher education in general during this time. We we appreciate your time and your perspective. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all very much. I, I very much enjoyed this. Well, just another huge thanks to Dwayne for talking to us today and sharing his insight. As May starting to come to a close, we're in the process of wrapping up our series on COVID-19 and prepping for our next topic for the podcast. We have one more episode on the topic with Payment Spring President Becky Pollock that's going to be released next week. And then in June, we'll start transitioning to our new topics. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode. 